welcome to Keeping Up With America. My name is Minerp, and today we'll be looking at the economic aspects of the American dream. As a child of immigrant parents, I've grown up glorifying the American dream. My mother grew up watching a 1980s film that sparked her interest in coming to America, called An American Tale. The film focused on the life of a mouse named Fievel, who moved from Russia to America in hopes of a better life. With streets made of cheese, tracks of open land, shiny skyscrapers, fancy cars, cowboy businessmen, and lavish lifestyle, Fievel was determined to move to America. But this larger-than-life and dazzling way of living was far from what Fievel had ended up facing when he moved to the U.S. Now, the late 1900s were tough times in America, with stagflation, malaise, the aftermath of Vietnam and Watergates, there were many hardships already present for those that were settled in America for generations. But these issues were nothing compared to those in these third world countries. Hyperinflation racked most third world countries, while coups and marital law were familiar occurrences. Looking at poverty rates across the world and India's economy becoming controlled by socialism, many immigrants across the world looked for a new place to start over. The term American Dream was invented in 1931 by historian James Truslow Adams. He was referring to, quote, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man, with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. But the American Dream for many meant a general prosperity and well-being for the average person. For many, this middle-class contentment had created a country filled with optimists. Compared to the failing economies of many third world countries that were ridden with unemployment rates and lacked basic health standards in the 1900s, America seemed like a light of hope. But it doesn't take a genius to realize how far reached the idea of even a standard form of living could be in America. When I myself went to India a few years ago, it was different from what I had heard from my relatives. What used to be a poor, slow-growing country now has the third largest gross domestic product, or GDP, in the world with regards to purchasing power parity and in projected to be the fastest growing major economy in the world by 2022, with 7.6% growth in GDP. Once an object of pity, India has become an object of envy. It has been seen as a potential superpower and the only credible check on Chinese power in Asia in the 21st century. Hence, the United States has backed India for a permanent seat in the United Nations and has persuaded the nuclear suppliers group to exempt India from the unusual nuclear non-proliferation rules. India now has hope and faith in the future to drastically increase its worldly presences. After centuries of stagnation, the economy seems to be on the move. This is also similar in Africa, where its economic pulse has quickened. Infusing the continent with a new commercial vibrancy, Africa's GDP rose by 4.9% a year from 2000 to 2008, more than twice its pace in the 1980s and 1990s. While Africa's increased economic momentum is widely recognized, its sources and likely staying power are less understood. Soaring prices for oil, minerals, and other commodities have helped lift GDP since 2000s. Research from McKinsey Global Institute shows that resources accounted for only about a third of the newfound growth. The rest resulted from internal structural changes that were spurred from broader domestic economies. Wars, natural disasters, 
or poor government policies could halt or even reverse these gains in any individual country. But in the long term, internal and external trends indicate that Africa's economic prospects are strong. Now, it's important to keep in mind that because of COVID-19, we are seeing a huge decline in economies around the world, and third world countries are at more, most at risk. As Africa was able to have an increase in GDP, in large due to oils, situations such as the worldwide pandemic could halt this progression. But even then, such countries have started growing. On the other hand, Americans seem to be dispirited and upset with the situations happening in the nation. The group that feels in particular at risk is the middle class. It is quite evident that as times have gone by, the middle class has increasingly gotten smaller, with many who would have been considered middle class 30 years ago would today be classified as low income. The most troubling part of capitalism in America is that the 1% owns 35% of the total country's wealth. As an American myself, I believe we have a good reason to worry. We have gone through the worst recession since the Great Depression. The 2008 financial crisis in America has led to America's GDP declining by 4.3% and the unemployment rate approached 10%. These effects still stand true today, where many American families are still stuck in this endless cycle of debt from losing their houses and unable to afford health benefits. Communities that are susceptible to such issues the most are people from the age groups of 18 to 35, African-American communities, and lower-wage workers. When the 2008 financial crisis had hit, the economy had started to show signs of weakness. This just so happens to be that the COVID-19 pandemic showed the fragility of America's divide between the economic lives of the rich and poor. Currently, over 26 million people have lost their jobs and many are unable to get stimulus checks. The fact that so many people are hurt financially after just one month of a missing paycheck shows the mirage of our booming economy was an illusion which only was working for the millionaires and billionaires. These billionaires triumph in the global economy. Looking at the most successful companies overseas, like Microsoft, Google, Apple, and Coca-Cola, they seem to be doing very well. The reason why is because these companies use technology to their advantage. As the recession in America continues in 2008 and even this year, these companies still seem to be doing very well compared to the millions of Americans that have lost their jobs. This is because when you have technology that is efficient at mass producing and doesn't require human attention, paired with a global recession going on where many are already losing their jobs, it just leads to a deep recession where people will not be able to get jobs for a very long time. Now, companies have learned during the 2008 recession that they were able to take out thousands of employees and were still able to generate the same amount of money in revenue. The reason why America still looks to foreign investment is because these companies on the S&P 500 generate 46% of their profits outside of the U.S., and for many, the biggest American names, these proportions are much larger. Now, these corporations are also turning to labor outside of America because of high quality work at a lower price. This has led to a lot of jobs being cut at home, where demand is weakening. It also partially explains why the hope for many immigrants trying to find labor in America is becoming increasingly harder as big companies turn to cheaper labor. 
None of these American companies will ever give up on the American market. It's just too large, too profitable, and too central to their businesses. But the marginal dollar is more likely to be invested abroad than in, than in the U.S. But labor isn't the only industry susceptible to loss in job demand. But even tech jobs. For many engineers and STEM majors trying to immigrate to America, they're willing to work at lower costs for big tech firms. While businesses have a way to navigate this new world of technological change and globalization, the ordinary American worker does not. Capital and technology are mobile. Labor isn't. American workers are located in America. And this is a country with one of the highest wages in the world because it is one of the richest countries in the world. That makes it more difficult for the American middle-class worker to benefit from technology and global growth in the same way that companies do. Historically, free trade has been beneficial to the rich and poor. This does make sense in theory, as we have found that countries that traded did prosper and achieve an average living standard for their citizens, while other countries that were communist and third world nations have found themselves in cheap industries, shady goods, massive corruption, and slow growth. But the difference between the U.S. and these countries is starting to falter. The growth of technology and globalization is proliferating at warp speed, becoming a new reality. China and India have been able to add hundreds of millions of new workers to the global labor pool. These laborers are able to provide the same goods and services as those in the Western world at a fraction of the price. At some point, with these differences, the global competition will be a new impact on the living standards available in the U.S. The distinction in the future won't be between the highly educated and those that are less educated workers, but rather between the jobs that can be done abroad and those that cannot. David Otter, an MIT economist, has done an important study on what he calls the polarization of job opportunities in America. Otter finds that the job growth divides neatly into three categories. On one side, there are managerial. These are professional and technical occupations held by highly educated workers who are comfortable in the global economy. Jobs have been plentiful in this segment for the past three decades. On the other hand, there are service occupations, those that involve helping, caring for, or assisting others, such as security guard, cook, and waiter. Most of these workers have no college education and can get hourly wages that are on the low end of the scale. Jobs in this segment, too, have been growing robustly. In between these two are the skilled manual workers and those in white-collar operations like sales and office management. These jobs represent the beating heart of the middle class. Those in them make a decent living, usually above the median family income of about $50,000, and they mostly did fine in the first two decades before the 2000s. But since then, the employment growth has lagged in the economy in general. And in the Great Recession, it has been seen that these middle-class folks have been hammered. But exactly why? Well, it would seem that technology followed by global competition has played the largest role in making middle-class work seem less valuable. So what is the solution? It's easier to identify the wrong answer than the right one. But technology is a much larger driver of the hollowing out than trade. You cannot shut down in this new world. There are solutions, but they are hard and involve painful changes. 
in companies, government programs, and personal lifestyles. For more than a generation, Americans have been unwillingly to make their adjustments. Instead, we found an easier way to goose the economy by expanding consumption. Unfortunately, this rise in consumption has not only triggered by a rise in income. Wages have been largely stagnant. It was facilitated, rather, by an increase in credit. So now an average American family has no fewer than 13 credit cards. Household debt rose from $680 billion in 1974 to $14 trillion in 2008. This pattern repeated itself in, in the government, except on a much larger scale. People everywhere, from California to New Jersey, wanted less taxes but more government. Local, state, and federal governments obliged, taking on massive debt. A generation's worth of economic growth has been generated by an unsustainable expansion of borrowing. Fundamentally, America needs to make a move from consumption to investment. Everyone agrees that the best way to create jobs in the U.S. is to create new industries and companies and to innovate within old ones. This means large investments in research, technology, and development. As a society, this needs to become our strongest focus. Most jobs that will be good prospects in the future will be complicated. They will involve being able to juggle data, symbols, computer programs in the same way or other, no matter what the task. To do this, workers will need to be educated and often retrained. We need more and better education at every level, especially job retraining. So far, most retraining efforts in the U.S. have not worked out very well, but they have worked in countries that were able to retain a manufacturing base, like Germany and parts of Northern Europe. In these countries, some of the most successful programs in imprint are apprenticeships, which cover only 0.3% of the total U.S. workforce. There are advantages to the U.S. system. We don't strain people too early in their lives, and we allow for more creative thinking. But the path to good jobs for the future is surely to expand apprenticeships programs substantially so industries can find workers it needs. This could require a major initiative, a training triangle, in which the government funds an education system that is able to teach. To pay for such initiatives, the government needs to get its house in order. The single most important aspect of this is getting healthcare costs under control, followed by other entitlement programs, especially pensions at a state level. We need a radical rebalancing of the American government so it can free up resources to fund future growth. Today, these forces really do look overwhelming, but challenges like them have been beaten before and can be again.